This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. Today is September the 15th. Fall is a busy time across animal welfare, and we've certainly got a lot going on here at Best Friends as well. Time has almost run out for your shelter or rescue to register to participate in the Best Friends National Big Dog Campaign. This is all about encouraging the public to consider a big dog for their next family member or next foster pet. Larger dogs, as we know, on average, have a longer length of stay in shelters across the country. And that can create this sort of cycle of sorts, where the stressful shelter environment can contribute to illness or undesirable behaviors. That often leads to more time in the shelter, which causes more stress, and on and on. So we want to get those dogs out, and this campaign is all about doing just that. Network partners that register, you'll be able to participate in a campaign media training webinar, you'll get a marketing toolkit, press release templates, easily editable graphics for your social media and website, links in the show notes on your podcast player. One of those links goes to the registration page for the Big Dog Campaign, and in case your shelter, rescue, spay, neuter organization, if If you're not yet a network partner, there's a link to learn more about that and get signed up. Both the network partner program and the Big Dog Campaign, totally free to participate. You do have to be a network partner to take part in the Big Dog Campaign and all the other things that we do here. But again, it's free, very easy to sign up. Time almost up though for the Big Dog Campaign, so you do need to hurry. The 16th is the final day. That is tomorrow. Check out the links in the show notes. Now this week is all about taking risks. Are you a risk taker? At the 2022 Best Friends National Conference in July, 20 brave risk takers got up on stage to tell a room full of strangers about a risk they took. Maybe it was more of a personal risk, or maybe the risk was more around something their organization did. As we know, we often have to step outside our comfort zones in this business, don't we? And the risk for reward sessions, thanks to Petco Love, five of those speakers went home with $1,000 to put towards their life-saving efforts. But all 20 speakers were fantastic. We just pulled out four to share with you today, but honestly, we could have used any of them. And if you were able to sit in any of the rooms at the conference this year while it was happening, then you know how fun these were. So without any further delay, first up, we're going to hear from Jamie Archer, the co-founder of Mutz of the Midway in Illinois. I'm not the rescuer I was. In August 2019, I took a risk on a dog named Daisy. She was a senior dash hound that had mammary masses removed in our care. I took a risk by letting the Ramirez family adopt her. This was a family that had only purchased dogs previously. And quite frankly, if I didn't have best friends there to help me check my biases and unnecessary restrictions as we formed Mutts, we would have never adopted to this family. The family met Daisy at a fundraising event, and they fell in love with this sweet, short little girl. She was a speckled, cuddly little dog that would lay on your pillow wrapped around your head if you would let her sleep there. As they started to ask more and more questions about adoption, I started doing what I was used to doing, which was sizing people up to decide, to judge, if they were good enough to adopt this dog. The Ramirez family was a Hispanic family, and I thought of my own Mexican family members who had dogs growing up. 
they loved them, of course, but they didn't feel, I didn't feel like they knew enough about veterinary care or training styles. And it was, it felt cultural to me when I compared them to my white family members. When they started asking about payment plans for the $300 adoption fee, I thought I could scare them away with talking of looming medical needs and expensive vet bills. And certainly when they shared that the dog in their home wasn't neutered, I could have assumed that they didn't care enough about their pet, that they weren't worthy to adopt any dog, let alone a senior that may need medical care in the future. Instead, I took a risk. I advocated for the Ramirez family to adopt Daisy, and we took time to go over our adoption policies to make sure that families like the Ramirez family were not only welcome to adopt with us, but were also a part of the Mutz team. So when they reached out a couple months later to share that they didn't have enough money to pay for the mammary mass removal that she now needed, I could have easily seen us doing what's best for the dog and taking her back into our custody, providing the necessary care that she needed, and then adopting her out to another family. Instead, I took a risk. I doubled down, not on my biases or my judgments, but on the love that I knew this family had for this little dog. So that's when we created uh, and piloted the Mutz Adoption Support Program. So Mutz paid for the treatment, and the family agreed to some terms. They gave 20 hours of volunteer time, sweat equity, to the organization, and they also agreed to fundraise or donate half the amount of money needed for the surgery over the next six months. It was a full family ordeal, and their 16-year-old son even picked up extra shifts to help pitch in. This March, another one of Daisy's loving family members, now a third grader in Chicago Public Schools, wrote a book called Daisy's Great Life. It was the story of how this dog made her way to their family, and it even won the district-level title. This accomplishment drove home to me that the risk I took is inspiring the next generation of animal lovers to adopt their next pet. I am not the rescuer I was. Now, I prioritize the dogs and the humans over me being right about the judgments that I make. I'm always fine-tuning my kindness and finding ways to do better. And I strive to have patience for people that aren't where I'm at because I learned from people that were better than I. And when they had a choice to judge my actions or chide my behavior, they didn't. They did what they did best, and I learned from them by watching them do it. I am not the rescuer I was, and because of that, the world is a better place for animal-loving families and dogs like Daisy. Thank you. Before we hear from our next risk taker, we want to know how you, podcast listener, how have you taken risks in your work? Podcast at bestfriends.org. That's our email here at the Best Friends Podcast. Shoot me an email. Let me know about the risks you've taken. Who knows? You might just be featured in an upcoming episode. And even if you don't want to be on the podcast, always love hearing these stories. Send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. Hi guys, my name's Megan. I am with the Wood County Humane Society and we are located in Bowling Green, Ohio. For those of you who know where Ohio's at, 
We're a little bit up from Columbus and a little bit down from Toledo. We are the only humane society in our county that takes in cats. We take in dogs, but there's also the local dog warden and things like that. So cats are a really big issue for our county. We are focused on being a managed admission facility, which means we get to dictate the animals we come in and maintain our occupancy level. So that way we can appropriately maintain our resources. Well, last year we kind of faced a bubble and all these factors come into an amazing peaking point where we were doing some renovations for our organization. We just had some really great opportunities arise. So we were able to shut down the shelter. We're a brick and mortar. So we're like, okay, we can figure this out. We put all the animals that we had in our care into foster homes. And we still were trying to maintain some intake because obviously our community still needed our help. Well, another big secret about the Wood County Humane Society is we also work with our county animal cruelty officer, which means if he finds animals, we have to take them in. So in the middle of being shut down, working off-site, he shows up with these eight abandoned, under-socialized, never-lived-outdoors cats. So immediately all these red flags and everything are going off, and we're just like, okay, what are we going to do? Well, being a managed admission facility, we also have to evaluate adoptability of animals like that. Because if we can't get them adopted out, what can we do? Lots of times for under-socialized cats through our program and our facility, that meant evaluating, can they survive in a barn home? Can they be an outdoor cat? We'll get them spayed, neutered, let them live their life. For these cats, that was not an option. It was very clear they'd only ever been indoor cats, and that's not a fair thing to ask of these guys. They were to the point, you put them in a kennel, you couldn't see them. <laughs> they ate their food so fast as if they'd never been fed a day in their lives, even though we're feeding every day at 8.05. So we're like, okay, well, they can't be barn homes. They're not friendly enough to be adoptable. I think we all know what that third option tends to look like. So I saw the moment. <laughs> I saw that red tape, I saw those limitations in our adoptability standards, and I said, hey, we're shut down right now. We don't have that pressure of needing to move animals through the door. The public's being very generous and utilizing area shelters and saying, hey, we know you don't have the room right now because you're working with just your fosters. The fosters have committed to these animals. Let's leave them in foster. Let's have them work on them. Let's see what we can manipulate and see what we can do. And then let's ask the public, hey, I know when you adopt, you want that instant, cuddly, furry, lovey animal, but what if you take a chance on this animal? What if I tell you we can give you the tools and tell you the steps you can take so that way this animal can form a relationship with you and you only? I can't guarantee, you know, you have your family over that that cat will be gone all day and just hiding in your room, but I promise I'm going to give you such a rewarding feeling by adopting and opening your home to this animal who just needs somebody to say, okay, I'll be here for you. I'm going to be honest, that was a tough conversation to have with my manager who's just looking at, hey, we got to get these animals flowing. We got to get these numbers. We have to help the most we can. So we got them into foster. And essentially what we did is in terms of looking at our adoptability for cats, instead of saying, hey, here's the checklist of what they have to meet. They need to be friendly. They need to be approachable. We at least need to be able to handle them. We don't want to have a 15-minute pep talk before doing vaccines and dewormers every month. I said, what if we set that aside and we take those factors and apply them to that individual cat? And we say, hey, this is how we can work with this cat. And these cats were 
lumped together. We do group names. I don't know if you guys get groups of animals in. They all get a theme. These were our dance cats. So we had Roomba, Waltz, Tap, and Folk. And I list those four specifically because out of the eight, those were the worst that we had. <laughs> um, these were the ones where that foster the first week called and said, hey, they got into my closet, ate the drywall, and they're in my attic somewhere. <laughs> so we were like, okay, that's all right. Okay, we're going to help you fix that. Let's fix that patch in the wall. We had to live trap her, get her out of the closet. And ultimately, we did find another foster because we found that this foster was just so much wanting to give the love. She was constantly like, let me in your bubble. And we're like, they don't want that. <laughs> so they went to another foster and ended up having free room of the house. And she was able to track them and monitor them because she just gave them space. So by finding that appropriate foster placement, we then were able to find the appropriate adopter home by being like, hey, these cats need their bubbles. Um, we were able to pair them up. Typically, bonded pairs are hard to place, but we were able to say, hey, with their backstory, they need that support system. Once again, through our organization, we don't do bonded pairs because I'm sure you guys see they st stay in your organization longer and that's hard to get them home. So we paired them up. We looked at each individual cat and said, we can maintain these same adoptability standards, but instead of being black and white, let's look at the gray, the off-white, the cream, the fuchsia. Let's create that whole scenario for each specific cat. And what's great is that opened the conversation from for, for more cats in our organization. So those cats led the way for a cat named Boo Boo, who needed medical inter intervention coming from being an owned pet into the shelter. And he had all these factors. So we had to do medical intervention. We had to have those long talks again. We had to do those special critiques to someone currently in foster care right now who has been in our care for over 40 days. I know, big number. No one likes hearing those numbers. But at our organization, for me, that's personally incredible because once we hit 10 days, we're starting to have those tough conversations. But now we recognize she's not in shelter. She's in foster that fosters dedicating their resources. So the shelter is a little bit alleviated of those resources. And even more so now, this cat has blossomed into an incredible adoptable cat because we're finding the needs that work specifically for her. Thank you guys so much and take risk. Hi, my name is Kelly Hines. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm here representing T-Town TNR, um, which is an all volunteer organization. Anyone who knows me would probably get a kick of, out of me talking about taking risks because I am not a risk taker. Um, that's not something I frequently do. Getting up and talking to you guys up here, that's as much as I'm going to do pretty much at any point. This is not about me, though. I'm at this incredible conference with my organization's executive director, Samantha Pullen. She is like a mentor to me and a trusted friend, a great travel companion, Aside from the pumpkin seed incident, which we won't get into right now, um, Samantha started T-Town TNR in 2015, and that was a big risk for several reasons. At the municipal level in our city, there wasn't much support for it. Even within the community, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of support for it. But Samantha knew that there was a huge problem, and it was just getting worse. Um, as many as 100 kittens coming in every day to the city shelter, more than 50% of the cats there being euthanized, many of those classified as feral cats, plus the unnecessary suffering of community cats out on the streets, mating, fighting, reproducing, all of that. So Samantha looked at the risks. 
She had spent a great deal of time researching city ordinances, and those ordinances included a leash law that applied to cats. If the city found out about TNR efforts, what would their response be? Would they try to fine us? Would they try to shut us down? It was just an unknown. So ultimately, Samantha decided it was worth the risk and went for it. T-Town TNR started with two women, two traps, one donor, and one vet. That first year, we did 316 cats, which may not sound like very many, but that laid the groundwork for what was to come. And there were also amazing results on a small scale because we were focusing on targeted trapping. The number of cats that went through our program increased by more than 100 the next year, and we just have kept growing. In 2018, we took another big risk by deciding to stop being a mostly underground, low-profile operation. We went public as a 501c3, launched a website, and created an online portal for people to request our services for TNR. And I think that's when things really started clicking for us. We were blown away by the number of requests we were getting. There was a huge need in our city for it, and people wanted that. So that really just ignited us even more. In 2019, we surpassed 1,000 cats in a year for the first time that went through our program. During the pandemic, when everyone was quarantining, we were trapping cats. In 2020, we did more cats than ever. And this month, we will surpass 7,500 cats that have gone through our program since we started in 2015. Those are cats that are being fixed and vaccinated, ear-tipped if they're going back out, and microchipped. Along the way, we have grown. We do have more than two traps now and more than two people trapping. Uh, We have a great group of volunteers. Um, We have weathered plenty of obstacles. Um, I call those the daily disasters. But we have also benefited from partnerships with other awesome organizations in our city. And we have been able to work closely with our city shelter, Tulsa Animal Welfare, which is doing really great things and saving more lives than ever before. T-Town TNR also established a critical care fund to address other medical needs for these community cats. And I think that has really helped to generate trust and support within the community because they're seeing that we aren't just addressing, you know, the spay and neuter issue. We're trying to improve the lives of these existing cats. We also, along the way, found out that what what we're doing isn't technically illegal uh, because the leash leash, leash law doesn't apply to unowned cats in our city. So that's a pro tip for anyone looking for a loophole. It's really helped us out. It's hard to imagine what the situation in our city would be like if those 7,500 cats hadn't been fixed. We still have a lot of work to do, and we are hoping to continue to grow, but none of our progress, all the successes that we've had, none of that would have happened if it didn't take one person saying, this is worth the risk. Thank you. My name is Cheyenne Cleary. I am the veterinary care manager at the Canal Charleston Humane Association in West Virginia. The risk that I wanted to talk with you guys today is about us building a Parvo program for our shelter. The reason that Parvo is so important to me is because these are some of the most fragile, most at-risk patients that come into our shelter. And while their disease is scary and a lot of times you know, they don't always make it through it. That doesn't mean that it should be an automatic death sentence. So our shelter takes in roughly 4,500 animals a year. 
Our building is older. It's not in the best of shape. There's not a whole lot of space. There's not really any isolation areas for contagious diseases. We do have a veterinary budget at our shelter. It's about 300000 a year, but that also includes our whole medical team staff. Um, so it's it's not a ton of money. We are usually strapped for funds. Even to get the necessities done sometimes is tough for us. But we always knew that we would love to be treating parvo. We just knew that it was hard and that it, w- it would take a lot of effort, and we were worried about how we would ever accomplish that. So in early 2019, which was years prior to us starting our program, all parvo positives were euthanized at our shelter. It didn't matter the severity of their symptoms, their age, their outlook. Everyone was euthanized. Littermates were euthanized. If they were in contact with parvo, they were euthanized. At that time, based on our resources, we just felt like we were not capable of housing those patients. We were definitely concerned about the cost of that. Parvo is not cheap to treat, right? So we were worried about that. We were worried about if we would be able to prevent the spread of that to our healthy population. We didn't want to put them at risk. So again, all those animals, they were just immediately euthanized. One case in particular that always stands out in my mind is a six-month-old pity puppy that we had. And of course, pities are my favorite. They are very near and dear to my heart. Um, she had brought in, been brought in by a good Samaritan and on her car ride in, she had vomited once, just once. But out of an abundance of caution, we ran a parvo test on her. Of course, it came back positive. She had absolutely no other symptoms. She was very happy. She was very playful. She was very sweet, just full of life. And I still remember to this day, and I'm sure the rest of my team does, the pain and just absolute helplessness you feel when there's a puppy who's so happy and healthy and you you can't do anything to help and that puppy's euthanized. So there were a lot of tears shed that day while we held her while she was euthanized. Um, but shortly after that day, our team sat down and said, why are we doing this? Is there anything that we can do to just save one puppy? How can we help these animals? How can we help our community? Um, so that was really the beginning of our Parva program was that day. And so we took the risk and we started that same year in the fall of 2019 We started by just treating mild symptomatic cases. Um, We wanted to start small and see what kind of impact we could make while still making sure that we did protect our healthy population and stayed within our budget. Um, We ended that year with a 20% save rate, so not not a huge save rate, but a lot bigger than our 0% save rate that we had in the years before that. We knew that we just still wanted to do better for our community. So in 2020, the very next year, we began treating all Parvo cases, regardless of severity. Um, Our save rate went up month by month that year, and we made really just drastic strides in our treatment plans for these puppies. At this point, all of our Parvo patients were being housed in our cat isolation unit in pop-up cages. We knew that wasn't ideal for the puppies or the cats, the staff cleaning them. It just wasn't an ideal situation. So we knew that wasn't going to work long-term, and we started looking for ways within our shelter that we could create a housing environment for these puppies. In 2021, we converted our basement, which was previously just a holding area for overnight humane officer drop-offs. We converted that into a full Parvo ICU. We were continually learning what worked the best, what made the best difference for our patients. Um, And our save rate by this time was up to 84%, and we had treated a few hundred puppies. I also, in this same year, recruited my shelter alumni pity to be a fecal donor for us. So we started being able to offer fecal transplants for our parvo patients, and it absolutely is as gross as it sounds. It's nobody's favorite job. It's very disgusting, but it works. And it is a very least expensive resource to be able to help the puppies in your care. And my pity, he has a name tag that he wears to work every day. He wears his title very proudly of Parvo support. He does a great job at it and it really, it saves lives. 
So we just continued to try to improve. We were thinking of ways that we can help, ways that we can do better. And the result of taking this risk and trying to improve today, we network with shelters all across the state of West Virginia. We take in all of their positive patients that we can. We've also started pulling from groups along the entire East Coast. So we pull from Kentucky, Virginia, Tennessee, just anybody that needs our help and anybody we can pull from. At our most recent check-in a few weeks ago, we had currently had a 99% save rate for all of our positive Parvo cases. Uh, we hospitalize anywhere from 10 to 20 patients at a time, and they're usually with us for about two to three weeks. Um, I'm also super proud to say that not only are we saving these puppies that come into our care, but we're also starting to address their emotional and social needs by taking it one step further and starting a Parvo puppy playgroup. It's hard to say, say that three times in a row. We are huge supporters of daily playgroups in general, just for our, our regular population. Um, but we knew that these puppies, they're really at a crucial time in their development for socialization. And we did not want to deprive them of that, of that time. So we didn't want to save them from Parvo just to set them up for failure behaviorally and socially. So we found a place on our shelter property that we weren't using and that was far enough away from our general population that we felt comfortable enough to call that our Parvo puppy play yard. And when I tell you that these puppies have the time of their lives in their play yard, that's exactly what I mean. It is the most beautiful thing to get to see every day and it has not gone any less perfect from the first day that we did it. So Parvo, you know, it takes a lot of things from young puppies. It can even take their lives, but it doesn't have to take their life and it does not have to take their social development either. So starting our Parvo program was absolutely scary. There were a lot of roadblocks, a lot of places we could have failed, but there is absolutely nothing seeing these patients go from dying to getting adopted or going back to their families who just couldn't afford care and we were able to give that back to them. If I had to say what I've learned most from taking this risk is to just start somewhere. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's a lot of hard work, but is it worth it? Without a doubt, it is absolutely worth it. And starting small is still making a change. Again, that 20% save rate, not great, but way better than 0%. So small steps lead to big progress. Just start somewhere. And what we always say is just be willing to learn and be willing to grow. Our Parvo ICU is the biggest part of who I am, and it's why I get up and do what I do every day. Um, it's the one thing that I am absolutely the most proud of, and I get very teary talking about that. <laughs> and I could talk about it for days, but I hope that if there's anyone who's in the same boat that we were in 2019, that I've given you at least a little bit of confidence that you can do it and that it will be worth the risk. Congrats to all of the risk takers and not just those 20 who got up at the conference in July, to all of you out there who are doing so much to save lives every single day. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.